Hi, welcome to Broadway Assembly Church Podcast. We are excited for you to be joining us today. If you want to get a notification of the most recent uploads, please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy. Here in northern Ohio, we're quite short sometimes. Praise the Lord, but glad you're in the house of God. Uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 14. By God's grace, we're going to finish up this uh, chapter 14 this evening. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 20, and that'll take us into chapter 15. All right, praise the Lord. So we're going to be uh, reading this uh, passage tonight. And uh, I'd like for you to stand for the reading of the word. And we're going to read verses 14 through 20. And uh, I want you to notice a couple things. It's all about the harvest. And uh, so notice this. He says, I looked and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, saying, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. All right, notice that is one harvest. Now we move into another Transition into verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this series that we have been looking into, uh, uncovering the mystery of Revelation. Hopefully, we have been able to see Christ uh, in another picture that was not given to us in the Gospels. And so, Lord, you have provided that picture in the uh, book of Revelation. And I pray we continue to process or be able to process what's happening here in the text tonight, get a greater understanding of these things. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody say amen. 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 God bless you. You can be seated. If you didn't get a study guide and you'd like one to take a few notes, Brother Dave's got some extras, it looks like, back there. Well, as I read and reread this uh, passage, um, I feel it is straightforward and clear, so much so that it doesn't need a whole lot of exposition or explanation. It's clear that a reaping of judgment 
is occurring in these final seven verses of this chapter. Now, we use the word judgment in a couple different ways. We can use it in the sense of revealing what people are. That's the idea of evaluation. Um, It's a form of judging, right? When you are evaluated, you are judged. We also use the word judgment in the sense of punishing those who deserve it. And in this text, we actually see uh, two analogies of judgment. The first is the gathering in of the grain. And then secondly is the gathering in of the grapes. Everybody say grain and grapes. All right, so it's pretty straightforward, I said uh, earlier. I mean, now, getting our generation to understand this passage, I don't think would be that difficult. But getting them to believe it, it's kind of a different story. Because notice on your study guide, I imagine that if there is one aspect of the gospel that is no longer believed, it is this aspect of approaching judgment and evaluation. And I say that because a society that believes judgment is approaching could not possibly celebrate sin as much as ours does. Would you agree with that statement? Now, granted, our our culture gives lip service to it and says they believe that judgment is real, but their actions, what, what, what our parents used to tell us, our actions speak louder than our words. And really, it's not hard to prove that. When you, when you look at our culture. For example, today we live during a time of what I would call universal fear of cancer. Cancer is real. Cancer has affected multitudes of people. Most of us has had family members affected by it. Because of that, we, we give and receive various reminders that we need to have routine checkups, right? I mean, from our colons on the inside to our sunspots on the outside. We want to be 100% certain that we are cancer-free. The fact is, all of the tests that we undergo for cancer screening is a form of judgment. Not judgment as in punishment, but judgment as in the form of evaluation. Follow me? We take our body to the doctor and we, he or she runs it through all kinds of tests that evaluate, that judge our condition. And these routine checkups are necessary. They are a necessary evaluation. So that if there is a problem, how many know we want to detect it 
early on so that we can escape the bigger problem later, right? Isn't that how it goes? So the way we know our society believes cancer is real is by seeing the numbers who flock to the doctors for annual evaluations and checkups and basically saying, Doc, check me, examine me, scan me, look me over, make sure I don't have any of that stuff called cancer, right? Now, by the same token, we can tell that our society doesn't really believe in the judgment of Scripture because our society almost universally rejects any and all preliminary forms of spiritual evaluation. Notice that on your study guide. I mean, uh, we got Matthew 7 and 1. Anybody remember that verse? Judge not, lest you be judged. It has basically overtaken John 3.16 as far as being the most often quoted verse in the Bible. And the reason our culture is so quick to quote that verse is because they don't really believe that the day of, of reaping and judgment will ever really arrive. And even more gut-wrenching is that instead of confronting that false idea, how many know modern churches by and large, are actually embracing it and even helping proclaim it. If I've heard it once, or if we've heard it once, we've heard it a thousand times. You know, I, I, I don't judge people. I just love people. As if judging in the sense of evaluating means we don't love. That would be like me saying, I refuse to let my wife go through a cancer screening to be evaluated or judged because I love her too much. Right? Most of you, if I would say that, you would probably reprimand me. Right? For that type of attitude. Rightfully so. But if I were to say, you know, I, I don't think we should evaluate or expose anyone's unscriptural lifestyle because we're just, we're just called to love. If I say that, odds are good that in the modern church culture, I would get a lot of amens and affirmations. So our culture is, has got this backward when it comes to the idea of judgment and evaluation to the point that it has almost gutted the gospel of its convicting power. Because the postmodern church has strayed so far from truth about judgment that it is in danger of not even proclaiming the true gospel anymore. So, this evening, I, I want us to see the truth about this final harvest in the text. The final evaluation. And I want us to walk through this passage and really highlight the facts about these two harvests. And, and really, we're going to see them come to light even more detail in the accounts given to us in Revelation 15 through 19 because this, these verses are just a preview of the next few chapters. We'll get there eventually. All right, so number one, notice on your study guide. 
we look first at the grain harvest. Now, the word harvest appears over 75 times throughout Scripture and is even implied more times than that. But this, what we read is our text tonight, is the last harvest time recorded in Scripture. This is it. The harvest of grain, notice on your study guide, is an overview of the coming bowls of wrath that is about to be poured out upon the earth as God's wrath is unleashed in this final series of cataclysmic events that we're going to study about later. So tonight we're going to look at the grain and the grape harvest. Both of them involve a sickle and reaping. In our day of, you know, today we've got John Deere combines and uh, bush hogs and weed eaters. Today we don't know a lot about sickles, right? Everybody say a sickle. But a sickle is simply an implement with a long handle. It's uh, got a curved single-edged blade. Uh, it was used to primarily cut wheat, and you would just swing that blade horizontally uh, as close to the ground as you could get, and that's, in their day, that's the idea of their harvester. Now, notice <clears throat> verse 14 says, I looked, John says, and behold, a, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. So what we find here is the real end times reaper, right? This isn't a cartoon character. This isn't a funny joke. This genuine reaper from the text is, is Christ himself. We're told in the verse that he comes on a cloud, right? Now, the word cloud is an interesting study throughout Scripture. It really relates to majesty. It relates to the presence and the glory of God. And theologian Donald Gray Barnhouse made the comment that one particular cloud follows Christ from eternity to eternity. And he makes the point that it is the cloud of God's glory known as the Shekinah. Right? Everybody remember that? So, this is the cloud of God's presence that Christ is coming back on. It's, it's the cloud of his presence, the same that we read in Acts 13 that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. Remember that cloud? It's the same cloud that appeared when Moses was given the law on Mount uh, Sinai in Exodus 19. It's the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple with glory. 1 Kings 8. It's the same cloud that received Christ as he ascended into the heavens in, uh, after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1. It's the same Shekinah glory that knocked Saul off of his horse as he rode to Damascus to hunt down the Christians in Acts chapter 8. You know, I believe that these are the clouds, the Shekinah, that will really encase the church as it is raptured to meet the Lord in the clouds. 
That's what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 states. These are the clouds that Daniel uh, saw in his vision, which he said the Messiah, he sees the Messiah return from heaven in the clouds in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So in other words, Christ the reaper is going to return to earth with a, uh, it's going to be a display of divine brilliance, majesty, and glory. And Christ said of himself in Luke chapter 21, 27, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. This is exactly what we see happening here in Revelation 14, 14. This is the fulfillment of Christ's own prophecy in the Gospels. So it's clear to us that we're dealing with Christ as the reaper here. We also notice that John calls Christ Son of Man, which is one of Christ's main titles in the New Testament. John used the same title over in chapter 1, and there uh, is absolutely no doubt that he's talking about Christ. And the Lord himself used that title, referring to himself often, because he was emphasizing his humanity. Okay? Yet, how many know he had full, complete deity? But yet he fulfilled the prophetic scripture. And we note that right here in Revelation 14, 14, you look, you'll find it's the last time any reference to Christ by this title, Son of Man, ever occurs. It's the last time this title is used. The first time we find this title in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, where we read that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, when Christ came that first time, he owned nothing, right? But now we're looking at the last usage of this title, and we're coming down to this last time it's used where he is appearing as the Son of Man, and he's going to claim ownership over the entire world. He will be seen as owning everything. The first time he came, how many know that was in poverty? The second time he comes, it's going to be in power. The first time the Son of Man appeared, he came as a sower. But when he returns in Revelation 14, he comes as a reaper. And the first time he came, he was wrapped in strips of garments. This time he comes, he's going to be wrapped in Shekinah glory cloud. Divine majesty and radiance, right? That's why this is a picture of final victory. And next, John says, I, I, I saw not only a cloud, but I see the Son of Man sitting on the cloud, and on the Son of Man sets a crown, a golden crown on his head, John says. Now, in the Greek... We have several different words for crown, and oftentimes they'll use the Greek word diadema, which is the word used for a king's crown. That's not the word John is using here. No doubt we know Christ wears that, right? Revelation chapter 19 shows us that on his head are many diadems, many crowns. Okay, but here... John points out this crown is, he uses the Greek word that means golden crown, which is, the Greek word is Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. So 
here Christ is wearing the crown of a general who has been triumphant in battle. That's the point being made here is that Christ wins. Okay? And nothing the dragon or the beast attempted or the false prophet has attempted has been successful against him. Praise God. Next we see that he is he has a sharp sickle in his hand, which is the tool, as I described earlier, to gather the stalks of grain. This is obviously a tool of judgment. But notice this heavenly command in verse 15, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come and because the harvest is ripe. Ripe here simply means the grain has now reached the point where it is ready for harvesting. And so the grain is ready and the command is issued. And that is when we come to verse 16 where the actual reaping takes place. In one massive swoop, the Lord swings the sickle. And the Bible says simply this, the earth was reaped. Simple as that. All the grain has been gathered in to the barn. That's the last and final harvest of grain we find in Scripture. Number two, the grape harvest. That picks up in verse 17 and goes through 20. Notice on your study guide, the harvest of grapes is an overview of the Battle of Armageddon where the final battle is fought as Christ returns to establish his earthly reign for a thousand years. <clears throat> and again, we see a reaper, only this time it's an angel. And this angel also has a sharp sickle. And then the command comes to him from verse 18. And we notice that there's this little inserted info that says this angel has the power over fire. Now, if you'll remember, this is the angel who attended to the incense altar back in chapter 8. This is the angel who burned incense, which symbolized, we, we talked about the prayers of the saints, and, and this angel actually became angry at the world for its treatment of believers. And so the text said back in chapter 8, 3 through 5, that he flung fire to the earth. Okay? So here, this is the same angel, I believe. This angel clearly has a soft spot for the persecuted. And now he is the one who gets to deliver the message for this final reaping of the wicked who have persecuted the believers. He says, put in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth because the grapes are ripe. Ripe here in the Greek is a different word than what we saw in verse 15 in the grain harvest. Here, ripe in the grape harvest translates into the Greek word which means juicy. The grapes are plump and juicy, ready to be taken to the wine press. And because the grapes are ready, it's time to reap. 
And in verse 19, not only do we read of the reaping, but we also see the fate of the grapes that are harvested. It says they are thrown into the great winepress of the what of God? Wrath of God. In the winepress, the grapes are crushed. They're stomped. The great winepress, notice on your study guide, is an idiom, or we would call it a metaphor for God's judgment. And verse 20 says, and the winepress was trodden. Blood comes out of the winepress, even unto the horse's bridles. By the space of 1,600 furlong, you, you, you equate that to miles, it would be the equivalent of 200 miles. If you're curious, that's about from Cleveland to Niagara Falls. I think that's a little more. It's maybe 213. But it's interesting, 200 miles is the approximate length of the entire Holy Land. From Golan Heights to the Dead Sea. What John is seeing, he says, is when... All the valleys of Israel and Judah will become a blood-stained battlefield. That is how this battle of Armageddon is going to end. So much bloodshed. So, as I said, understanding the picture, I don't think it's that difficult. We, we know what's happening here. There, these were no doubt the wicked of the earth. They were absolutely crushed under the mighty power of God in the winepress. And this is the great battle known as Armageddon where the Bible says all the kings of the earth have assembled. And they take their stand with the Antichrist. Right? And they join forces to defeat Christ. How's that work for him? Not very good. They get crushed. So I think what we see here in these two harvests is exactly what Scripture predicts will happen. If you recall, John the Baptist spoke of the coming Messiah and reminded us that there would be, in fact, two reapings. Matthew 3, 12, John says this, whose fan is in his hand. That's the Greek winnowing fan. Talking to the Messiah, he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You remember that passage? So, notice on your study guide, one harvest would be for the redeemed who would be gathered into the barn, a.k.a., if I could say heaven. The second, which is the grape harvest, would be the wicked ones who will be gathered into the wine press and subsequently destroyed. It seems apparent to me that this is what we are reading here as we 
close the chapter uh, 14 of Revelation, Christ is going to separate. He's going to judge. He's going to evaluate. He's going to expose. And then he will render recompense. And incidentally, this is not nearly the only place it's mentioned. You know, the parable we find in Matthew 13, 36, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. Remember that one? Christ said, ah, oh, just let them grow together. He's like, no, we want to get in there and rip up the tares. And he said, no. Because he's waiting until this reaping that we're just read about. He says, I'll take care of that. Because one day, how many know he's going to separate the good from the bad? Right? And he rewards the good destroys the bad same idea is matthew 13 47 on later in the chapter we have the parable of the dragnet same idea christ separates the good from the bad he rewards the good destroys the bad the sermon christ preached to his disciples clearly states in matthew 16 a few chapters later where he says for the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Christ will distinguish between the good and the bad and reward accordingly. And the message of the 25, Matthew 25, all through Matthew, we find now the sheep and the goats. He's coming and he's going to separate them. The sheep are gathered into the joy of their master when the goats are destroyed. So notice on your study guide, a point Christ makes over and over is no one can escape judgment, right? No one's going to escape this final evaluation. And, you know, we can cry, judge not all we want. But how many know that's not going to change the facts, right? We can say, I won't judge anyone, but I. It won't eliminate their judgment, right? I mean, it, it's, I was thinking this week, it's common that our youth quickly pick up on the catchphrases of our culture. Um, I hear them say quite often, don't judge me, right? My own kiddos say that. Don't judge me. It's another way of saying, don't tell me I'm wrong. Come on now. Right? It's the mentality that has become so popular in our culture that the church has started believing it. The church has even started to believe that there's never a situation in which we should evaluate another individual. And if you've embraced that idea, then I guess I'm going to be the one to tell you that's not biblical. Right? You say, well, what about the command, uh, Matthew chapter 7, judge not? Well, if you read the passage, you'll find you've under misunderstood it. Most people think that when they read it that it means, well, if I don't judge others, then I'm not going to be judged either. I mean, no, that's not true. They think, if I just go through life tolerant of all people and all behavior, then someday... God will refrain from judging me too. 
Is that what we just saw in Revelation 14? Did God only judge those who were not tolerant? And if that's the case, then all God really wants from humanity is tolerance, not righteousness. Somebody say amen. Sad to say, there are plenty of people who have adopted that as their primary theology. They completely overlook passages that says, be ye holy, for I am holy. They ignore Christ's call to be ye perfect as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And they think God doesn't care about righteousness just so that we don't ever under any circumstances tell anybody they're wrong. Newsflash. Matthew chapter 7 is not forbidding judgment. It's forbidding self-righteousness. This passage is rebuking those who refuse to judge and evaluate themselves. They're judging everybody else. Read it. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Read that entire passage. You'll find that Christ is amazed that these guys could see the dust particle in their brother's eye and miss the two by ten sticking out of their own eye. Right? That's what he's saying. He's rebuking the one who will judge other people's sin, but always refuse to judge their own. See, judging is not the problem here. Self-righteousness is. And in fact, Christ goes on to command righteous judgment and evaluation. John 7, 24, judge not according to the appearance, but notice what he says. Here it is. Judge righteous judgment. You see that? That's, that's on down in verse 24, the same chapter that begins judge not. Also says judge righteous judgment. So you got to take that in, in consideration. Christ just commanded us judge with a righteous judgment. And this becomes crystal clear if we read later, go on down to Matthew 18, where Christ commands us to confront the sin of our brother. Oh, man, that's tough, Right? You see your brother overtaken in a fault, right? I mean, he's read that text. So that's obviously what Christ is doing all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Some would say, well, what about Jesus and how he dealt with the woman caught in adultery? You know that passage that reads, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, even that story doesn't eliminate judgment. You say, yes, it does. Jesus didn't let them stone her. And that's when I chuckle. I can't help but say, I mean, do you really suppose that when the church exposes sin, that it's the same thing as when those Pharisees were doing it? I mean, look at the obvious. They were trying to kill the woman, right? I can confidently say our goal has never been to kill anybody. <laughs> and so our goal is to lead people to repentance so that they can bypass this destruction but if they'd read the passage then they'd see that after the crowd left what did Jesus do uh oh he judged the woman he said in verse 11 John 8 11 I want you to go and what sin no more ah mm. go and sin no more who does Christ think he is insinuating that this woman was a sinner how dare he Right? 
Why, if I was that woman, I would have looked him right in the eye and said, don't judge me. Huh? Or how about consider another woman? Uh, you remember the woman at the well? Oh, Christ got a little judgy. Remember, she wanted living water, and Christ said to her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. Christ is at it again. Judging. How about this statement from Paul in the, in the early church, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators or with the covetous extortioners, idolaters. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous idolater, railer, or drunkard, or extortioner with such a one, don't even eat with him. And then he goes on to make this statement. Do not ye judge them that are within? And he says, then put away from among you the wicked person. Paul says, of course we judge. We're commanded to judge or evaluate. Why? Because nobody gets a pass. Nobody will ever get a pass. Bottom line is, we want people to fix the problem before the final punishment. Notice that on your study guide. Like cancer, I said it's best if it's caught early. Right? Because our judgment is like that of the doctor who runs you through the CAT scan to help expose anything wrong. And our generation needs to come to Jesus' moment and realize that if we judge ourselves now, everybody say now, how many know it will be a whole lot better for us when Jesus comes? Right? That should be clear to us when we read passages like Revelation 14. Because there is coming a day when Christ himself will separate the righteous from the wicked. The righteous will be gathered into the barn and the wicked will be crushed under his feet. It's black and white, I know. Many would say it's severe, it's extreme. So we can go through this life if we want to, chanting, don't judge me. We can go through this life claiming, I don't judge anyone, but all we are doing is giving ourselves and the world around us a free pass to go ahead and live in their mess until Christ judges them. And the problem with that is it's going to be too late. Hello. That's the truth about judgment or evaluation in these last days that we live in. It's real. And that's the idea of the church warning the world. Because shouting judge not doesn't change a thing. When Christ in the Beatitudes outlined who would inherit the kingdom of heaven, it wasn't the people who were defending their sin. It was the people who despised their sin. A righteous heart doesn't get mad at the person who confronts their sin. A righteous heart's get mad at the flesh who committed the sin. Right? I don't know if you followed that. 
Proverbs 9, 8 says, Remove not a scorner, lest he hate. Rebuke not a scorner, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he's going to love you. Right? Because we live in a day that thinks any kind of judgment is a myth. We live in a day that thinks sin will never really be punished, and, and that's just not true. All the way to Revelation chapter 14. So the next time someone exposes our sin to us, how many know we should pray it through? And then maybe we ought to go thank them from the bottom of our heart because they loved us enough to try and spare us the approaching judgment. Because the judgment of the church is not to drive people to hell. It's to drive them to Christ. And here's what I want you to see. If you didn't hear anything else, I want you to get this last part. And I'm concluding. Because remember last week, we found that the cup of God's wrath, which he will force sinners to drink, it noted in the text that it will be mixed in full strength. That means undiluted. He will trample men in his wrath until their blood flows down through the streets. But thankfully, <coughs> thankfully, the gospel tells us that there's a way to skip out on having to drink this cup of God's undiluted wrath. I want you to think of Christ in Matthew 26, 39. It says he went a little further. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. Remember what he said? But as thou will. I believe that cup that Christ is referring to here was the cup of God's undiluted wrath. That means that Christ drank it so that those of us who repent of our sins and trust him do not have to. Oh, hallelujah. Christ didn't eliminate judgment. He satisfied it. Right? And so on the day that our sin is revealed to us and we were informed that all sin gets judged, that knowledge is what drove us into conviction and into Christ's arms. Then when we ask Christ in repentance and faith, Scripture promises that once we repent, we will be justified. Why? Because Christ satisfied the wrath of God for all of us who put our faith in him. I said he didn't eliminate God's wrath on our sin. He just satisfied it so that we'll never have to experience it. Now, that ought to make somebody a little happy. That ought to make somebody's day. However, if we refuse, if we maintain this don't judge me philosophy, then we will drink the cup of God's wrath ourselves. And so I pray that we will not be confused about the issue of this end times judgment and evaluation. The fact is, God always judges sin, doesn't he? We have something in our culture called consequences, right? 
Because for every wrong decision, there's a consequence. And the good news is that for all sinners who have been made aware of their sin and repent of that sin, their judgment will have been fully satisfied at the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. Church, that's why we can say it's good news. Praise God. We may muddy up the theological waters in a lot of different areas, but we cannot afford to muddy them up on that foundational truth. It must remain crystal clear, right? So, does that make sense? So if you're running around with this popular mantra that is just, I'm just a loving person, I don't judge anybody, I'm going to tell you, stop it. Why? Because you're distorting the gospel. You're minimizing the cross. And you're undermining the true work of Christ and the church. Our message has never been that sin is okay. Our message is that sinners can be made righteous through the cross of Christ. And if you are one of those who cries, don't judge me. All I can tell you is that your expectation is unrealistic. It won't wash at the end of the day. There is coming a day when the sheep is going to be separated from the goats, the wheat from the tares, and when all who are sinful will be forced to drink the full undiluted wrath of God. That's why we should never condone our sin. Rather, we should mourn over it, throwing ourselves on Christ, who is the only one who can justify us in the sight of a holy God, because he drank that cup for us. Hmm. Says Jones, you can come. That's, I mean, no wonder the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. No wonder the Bible says, kiss the son lest he be angry with thee. What a frightening future the unrepentant world has. But oh, what a blessed future. Those that have run to Jesus will have. Somebody say amen. amen. Father, thank you for giving us the truth tonight. At the same time, Lord, may we feel responsible to pass it on. Lord, just like John the Baptist, just like Christ, just like Paul and Peter and every other faithful believer did, help us to be faithful to warn of that approaching judgment. Father, we know that the world around us isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. So, Lord, help us to have a passion in our hearts to tell folks the full gospel truth. It's not enough just to talk about the positive things and the happy life right now. Help us to warn folks that there's a, there's a judgment coming soon. And help us to be faithful in pointing them to Jesus. Well, thank you for that in Jesus' name. All God's children say amen. May we stand together in your hymn book. There's an old chorus I was thinking about, page, I think it's found on page 378. Uh, just thinking about the two harvests that we have talked about this evening, um, this chorus came to mind. Simply says, harvest time, harvest time.
the Savior's calling, the grain is falling. Oh, do not wait, it's growing late. Behold, the field is white. It's harvest time. Anybody remember that old course? Anybody? Let's sing it together. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Come and find a place to pray if you can before you leave. Let's sing it together. Harvest time. Harvest time. The Savior's calling. The grain is falling. Oh, do not wait. It's growing late. Behold, the field is white. It's harvest time. Talk.